of God, the Holy Bible. We want you to be exalted this morning. In Jesus, I pray it would be as if it were not me standing behind this pulpit preaching, but it would be you. May the same authority and power that you have, that was through your teaching, may it be in me and flow through me to edify, to build up this, your church, this body of believers that are here this morning. Help us to refocus on you. Lord, all of the distractions just from life in our overfilled, busy lives. We put them aside in fellowship with you this morning. And all God's people said, amen. Well, it is a Sunday afternoon. Just picture us, a Sunday afternoon in the fall. Picture me, and this is going to be easy for you to do. I am relaxing in my recliner, right? Doing what most normal people do in the fall season, which is what? Watch football. If that wasn't the first thought in your mind, get in my office this week, intense therapy, all right? Watch football in the fall. God bless you, number three there. All right. Now, our house, unfortunately, has an open concept design. So our kitchen is right off the TV room. Obviously, a female did not come up with open concept, okay? So, or they came up with this because, so here's the, the TV room, here's the kitchen. There's no wall separating the two to cut down the noise, right? So you can have someone in the kitchen running water, the dishwasher going, they can be cooking, and right, you know, right there, the wall is where the TV is. Now, my wife is in the kitchen talking to me while I am in the TV room doing what in the fall? I'm watching football, exactly. Now, you can see where this is going. Now, despite my best efforts to listen to her, I am in a losing battle. Because sometime during the, uh, the eighth and 24th week of pregnancy, and if you notice not, the mother's body releases hormones. I think it's a testosterone hormone. But they bathe that, the baby's brain in a chemical bath, and that is what makes the unique male brain. Did you guys know that? I know you knew that. You knew that, Carol? Yeah. Some of you knew that. Well, you learned something new this morning, all right? You're like, I'm good. You can go home now. I'm like, okay. Well, anyways, what it does is where the baby's brain was globally connected, okay, all the, the synapses and the elect whatever it is, the electricity, the communication, basically, between both hemispheres, it's open. There's open communication between both hemispheres of the brain. After that chemical bath in that child, that is now disrupted. This makes the male brain able to focus, or what we call compartmentalize. But it makes doing two things at once a challenge, right? So picture this. I am watching television, and my wife is talking to me. Who is going to win that battle? Now, here's the thing. I am left 
because of my brain damage to do one thing. I can nod my head and I mutter, uh-huh, as if I am actually listening to her in hopes of fooling my wife that I actually am listening to her. But am I listening to her? No, I am not. Now, I know that that's unique to me and no one else struggles with this. But my wife is not innocent in this as well. She has not cornered the market on listening either. For as brain damaged as I am, I can tell you when we are talking and she is not listening to me. And if you hear the feedback, then there's just feedback. Anyways. Now, my wife is, is brilliant. She is smart, and she can actually be looking at me. See, if, if I can actually be looking at my wife and talk to her, and she knows that, you know, I, I am not distracted. I'm just looking at her, talking to her, and she is talking, and she knows when I'm done listening to her because there's a glaze that comes over my eyes. All right? She is master that there's no glaze over her eyes. She can be looking at me, and I am intently focused, talking to her in a conversation, and what does she do? She interrupts me. Now that tells me two things. I mean, everyone interrupts people, some more than others. My wife happens, one of her few flaws is interrupt more than I do. But it tells me two things when she interrupts me, that she thinks that what she has to say is more important than what I'm saying, and number two, it tells me she is not listening to me. Now, this uh, listening problem is an epidemic, we call it a pandemic in our family, because my kids can be better listeners, okay? There have been times when I have asked my children to do something, such as empty the dishwasher or take out the trash, and it doesn't happen. And here is how the following conversation goes. Kids, why didn't you take out the trash? And the answer is, of course, inevitably, I don't know. <laughs> and so the next question is this, do you speak English? Because I speak English, and I want to make sure that you speak English, so we're speaking the same language, so you understand, you hear and understand what I told you to do. Yes, Dad, I speak English. Okay, but then why didn't you do it? And the answer basically is, they simply weren't listening to me. Because we know that listening includes the, the idea of obeying. So a phrase that my kids have heard over and over again, <laughs> yes, learn to listen. So we have a listening problem in our family. And I would say that God's family has a listening problem too. Don't we do the same thing with God? We don't do a good job of listening to him. I put this up here for you. I thought this was a great quote. I'm going to read some quotes here uh, in a moment when this works. So I'll try it again and again. There it is. Can you read that? Rodney, can you read that? I heard you. I made it bigger and brighter and everything. You can read that in the back. The nosebleed section? Okay. The trouble with nearly everybody who prays is that he says amen, or she says amen, he or she says amen, 
and runs away before God has a chance to reply. Listening to God is far more important than giving him our ideas. Now, doesn't that describe, for many of us, just our prayer life? We do all talking and don't give God any chance, really, to speak. So I said I have some quotes. I want to just read to you some quotes on listening I think will be relevant for this sermon and for our lives. This is Moses writing this down, quoting God in Deuteronomy 18, 18 to 20. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. So God's going to raise up this prophet, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. This prophet will be perfect. He will speak everything that the Father, God, commands. Now, why is he speaking? And why is he so important that you listen? Well, it says, and whoever will not listen to my words, they shall speak in my name. I myself will require it of him. So God is speaking through his prophet, and he expects his people to listen. And if you don't listen, God says, I'll require it of you, meaning you're going to be held accountable. Pretty clear, right? God spoke this in Matthew. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, there's an Old Testament verse and a New Testament verse. Both of these verses underscore the need for God's people to learn to listen. In fact, throughout history, man has always had a need to learn to listen to God. Here are some quotes, not from the Bible. You've heard this quote before, but it's so good, I want to bring it back to your attention again. This is from Henry Nouwen. It says, from all that I had... From all that I said about our worried, overfilled lives, it is clear that we are usually surrounded by so much outer noise that it is hard to truly hear our God when he is speaking to us. Can you relate to that? We have often become deaf, unable to know when God calls us, and unable to understand in which direction he calls us. Thus our lives have become absurd. In the word absurd, we find the Latin word certus, which means deaf. So a spiritual life requires discipline because we need to learn to listen to God, who constantly speaks, but whom we seldom hear. When, however, we learn to listen, our lives become what? Obedient lives. The word obedient comes from the Latin word audire, which means what? Listening. You can't separate obedience from listening. A spiritual discipline is necessary in order to move from an absurd life, you see, a deaf life, to an obedient life, a listening life. From a life filled with noisy worries to a life in which there is some free inner space where we can listen to our God and follow his guidance. Jesus' life was a life of obedience. He was always listening to the Father always attentive to his voice, always alert for his directions. Jesus was all ear, and that is true prayer, being all ear for God. The core of all prayer is indeed listening, obediently standing in the presence of God. Now, I've shared that before, but again, it underscores the importance of learning to listen, listening to God. Dallas Willard wrote this, if you ever struggle with failing to hear God's voice, listening to him for his direction, 
he says, our failure to hear his voice when we want to is due to the fact that we do not in general want to hear it. That we want it only when we think we need it. Henry Blackaby wrote this, unless we see God's activity in the midst of them, I mean in our lives, we will be unaware of their spiritual significance. They will simply be events in a long succession of confusing occurrences. A miracle could take place and we would miss it. But if we are sensitive to God's voice, these same events can hold enormous significance for us. A miracle could take place and we could miss it. A miracle is taking place right now. And in two weeks from now, roughly, it's called what? Christmas, which is the miracle of the birth of Jesus Christ. How many people will miss that? Right? Now, all the above quotes have one thing in common. They all assume that God is speaking. My point is this, though. What happens, what about the times when God is not speaking? See if this works. Yes. Let's talk about when God is silent. What does it look like when God is no longer speaking to his people? Well, Proverbs 29:18 says this: Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. Or where there is no revelation, meaning a revelation of God, the people cast off restraint. So when God ceases, or where God ceases to reveal himself, where there is no more revelation, he's no longer speaking to his people by his prophets through dreams and visions. That's how he spoke in the Old Testament. It says the people cast off restraint. So in other words, the word of God keeps sin in check. The word of God keeps sin in check. I.e., salt slows what? The process of decay, exactly. Remove the word of God from society, and man is set free to live according to his corrupt nature. Now everyone turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. Because in the time of Samuel the prophet, we have these chilling words that are recorded for us. 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. Learn to listen. You've got your hearing aid, okay, you have an excuse. Guys, you can say, I was in another compartment, so I didn't hear. Can you repeat it? Right? First Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. And you're going to go back to the left in your Bibles, back to, to Judges in a moment, but I want to share something with you here. Okay, I'm assuming we're all there by the silence. It says, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Why was this written in there? Well, in the time of Samuel the prophet, those chilling words I just read to you, what was it, the society or culture like? Well, this was a time of the judges. Samuel was a judge. He was the last judge. He was also considered a prophet. And the nation of Israel was in a dark place. 
They were caught in the repeated behavior of national sin that, of course, was followed by the judgment of God in the form of captivity by a foreign nation, only to be eventually restored by a judge. So, the cycle was this. National sin, followed by captivity, followed by restoration. You with me so far? Now, the book of Judges ends with this ominous verse. Go back in your Bibles, go to the left. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel. Go back to Judges chapter 21, verse 25. For those of you who weren't listening, Judges 21, verse 25. Time of the Judges, what was it like? Well, here we go. Judges 21, verse 25. And I'll take this verse and explain it in our context today. It says, in those days, Judges 21, 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let me tell you, it is never good when people do whatever is right in their own eyes. Now allow me to interpret this verse with terms that we understand. Make it personal for us. Make it relevant. If I were to summarize Judges 21-25, it would be with these three words. Ready? Truth is personal. Truth is personal. Truth is no longer absolute. It's no longer relative. It's personal. We are living in a time when truth is personal. People do whatever is right in their own eyes. Now this summer we witnessed what? Rioting and looting in cities that were run by Democratic governors that resulted in untold damage to local businesses. And this behavior, in any normal time, would be condemned. But it was not condemned by these civic or government leaders. We live in a time where we justify the murder of innocent children in the womb. We live in a time where we, we defund the police, which of course only results in what? More crime and violence, and our civic leaders who defund the police don't understand why there is an increase in crime and violence. So right is wrong, wrong is right. That's what society looks like when truth is personal when people do what is right in their own eyes. Now when God is silent, the people live in spiritual darkness as well. In the time just before Samuel, Eli was the priest. And the priesthood was corrupt. His two sons were so vile that it was God's will to take their lives on the same day, for they lay with women outside the tent of meeting. Do you know what the tent of meeting was? Well, Moses would go into the tent of meeting to meet with who? God. He would spend so much time with God that his face would come out with this radiant glow. Who would sit outside the tent of meeting while Moses was meeting with God? Joshua. Because when Moses passed on, who next would go into the tent of meeting to meet with God? Joshua would. Okay? So it's a place where you meet God. Eli's two sons were committing sexual morality outside the tent of meeting. 
They scorned the sacrifices and offerings of God. And Eli, because he didn't parent his children, and because of the corruption, the spiritual decay in Israel, was judged severely. No one from his house would serve before the Lord. See, that's what it looks like when God is silent. There's spiritual decay. Now, let me give you a bigger picture, a national picture of the darkness that follows the silence of God. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verse 78. This is where we'll get into our Christmas portion of this message. Luke chapter 1, verse 78. There it is. The sound of Bible pages being flipped. The fear of, am I the last person to get there? And will the pastor point me out? Because he's waiting on me. Luke 1, 78. Says this, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Now that phrase, the sunrise shall visit us from on high, is a reference to who? Who's the sunrise that shall visit the people? It's Jesus Christ, exactly. Now this is a wonderful prophetic word because it signals not only the coming of the Messiah, but also that the hours of darkness are coming to an end for Israel. And to be honest with you, Israel had been in in the darkness for a long, long time as they waited for a savior. Throughout all of Israel's history, and this is their history, a history of calling that began with Abraham, was a history of exile, 400 years in Egypt, a history of wanderings, 40 years in the wilderness, a history of the conquest of the land of Canaan, a history of the occupation of the land of Canaan, of captivity, of the northern kingdom taken captive in 722 B.C., the southern kingdom taken into Babylon in 586 B.C., the northern kingdom never returning, the southern kingdom returning 70 years later. So Israel's long history of coming back out of captivity and trying to rebuild and then only to be oppressed, as history tells us, as the Greeks invaded and controlled the land. And then Romans came and further oppressed them. The long night of Israel's history of blessing and cursing mixed. The long night of Israel's history of faithfulness and apostasy. And what sustained your average Israelite during those times? As they looked toward God through all those long years of darkness in the hope that the sunrise would break. You see that? This was the last time the work verse I just had you read, it was the last time God spoke to them. Zechariah is prophesying that in Luke 178. And he references the last prophet in the last book of the Old Testament. It's found in Malachi 4.2. Just listen to me because I'm going to basically read the same verse. But you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. So Malachi, the last prophet, the last book of the Old Testament, promised in the last chapter the book that bears his name, that the son, S-U-N, of righteousness would arise with healing in its wings. My point is this. Malachi and Zechariah are saying the same thing, that sunrise is coming, that darkness is not permanent. And this is great news because the last time God spoke was through the prophet Malachi and 400 years have passed. But in the Old and New Testament... 
So the last time God spoke to the people had been 400 years. Now think about that for a moment. God has been silent for 400 years. Indeed, this was the darkest time of all. For 400 years, heaven was silent. What was going on? Were his people praying? Yes, they were. But imagine praying, and it very much would feel like your prayers just bounced off the ceiling. For a lifetime, God hadn't spoken. Because God wasn't speaking, Israel sunk deeper and deeper into depression. You would too, if you remember what Israel had gone through. In addition to everything I just said, they were oppressed by the Greeks, whose ruler Antiochus Epiphanes actually had the nerve to step into the sacred Holy of Holies, the holy place of the temple, and desecrate those places, even sacrificing a pig on the altar. And that was an abomination. There was a time when the Gentile Greeks came in and brought their pagan gods and their pagan theology and mingled it with it in the culture, in that sacred land, and with the people of Israel. The Greeks were followed by the Romans with all their idolatries. And this made the depression all the greater. And as much as the Jewish people cried out to God, and you would too, right? If you were there alive during that time, God didn't answer. And God didn't speak. No prophet appeared. The result of God's silence, Israel sank deeper and deeper into sin and apostasy until the time of the first gospel, or the gospel of Luke begins. The Judaism as we know it, existing in the land of Israel, was apostate. It abandoned the true message of the Old Testament for a false one, engaging in self-righteousness. All the things that God hates. That is what it's like when God is silent. But Malachi said this, in Malachi 3, verse 1, that the Son of Righteousness is coming. He also said that before the sun rises, the Messiah, there will be a prophet to announce his arrival, and he will prepare the way for the Lord. Behold, Malachi 3, 1, I will send my messenger, he will prepare the way before me. So when that prophet comes, what happens? The silence of heaven will be broken. It will be broken with the voice of God, and the darkness of earth will be shattered by the light of the Savior and Redeemer. And the world will know when God has spoken when the Messiah arrives. Well, how will they know? Before the Son of Righteousness, before the Son rising from on high, will come this prophet, and he will announce the arrival of the Messiah. The silence then will be broken when the forerunner, John the Baptist, arrives on the scene. And that is why he is called the greatest. All the other prophets knew of the Messiah, but none of them could actually point to the Messiah. And remember what John the Baptist did? He saw Jesus walking, what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He could point to the Messiah. There was no one greater than John the Baptist in that regard. Now, what happens when God speaks? We talked about God's, when God is silent, but when God speaks. Let's take a closer look 
at how God breaks his silence. And this is really the point of the sermon. In order to do so, I need to explain miracles to you. Just by definition alone, a miracle is this. It's a surprising and welcome event that is not explicable by, na- by natural or scientific laws and is therefore considered to be the work of a divine agency, the supernatural work of God. So a miracle, by definition, is an act or event that is entirely supernatural. And miracles really had one purpose. They were to demonstrate, and you understand this, that God had intervened into human life to speak and act. That's the purpose of a miracle, or of miracles. Now you find God working miracles throughout the Old Testament. For example, we find God performing miracles in Egypt. you remember those? God miraculously brings plagues upon Egypt that causes them to allow the Israelites to leave for the promised land. God miraculously parts what? The Red Sea, so they, his people can walk across on dry ground, and then he drowns in that same sea all the pursuing armies of Egypt. There are miracles that follow Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. God provides manna from heaven and water from a rock. And during that time, during all that time, God is revealing himself. God is speaking, showing who he is. During the lifetimes of Elijah and Elisha, for example, you find miracles. Remember the fire that came down from heaven on Mount Carmel, consumed the sacrifice. Elijah had the story of parting the Jordan River. God is doing miracles. In the time of Daniel, God speaks to Daniel and reveals Nebuchadnezzar's dream and its interpretation. He protects Daniel in a den of hungry lions, and an angel protects Daniel's three friends. Who are they? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, right? They're thrown to a fiery furnace and come out unscathed. But the last recorded miracle before the birth of God's son, what is it? Well, that would be during the time of Daniel, which is roughly 500 years before we find ourselves in the Gospel of Luke. So no recorded miracles for about 500 years, and and God hasn't spoken for just over 400 years. It is a dark time. But it is the miraculous that greets you when you read the first chapter of Luke. All of a sudden, angels start to appear. There are dreams and visions. There's a supernatural birth of John the Baptist. God is speaking and miracles are happening. But of course, the greatest miracle of all is what? The virgin birth, exactly. God has indeed intervened and invaded history with an explosion of miracles and a supernatural message pointing to his son, the promised Messiah. So God is speaking through his miracles. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Not everyone was listening. So, let's talk about, as we end this sermon, Christmas redefined. It's Christmas season. It's a season to be jolly. It's a time of ornaments, red and green decorations, silver bells, holly, mistletoe, colored lights. It's a time of exchanging gifts to celebrate the birth of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a time of department store Santas calling out their universal mantra, ho, 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 
Merry Christmas. Throughout the world at this time of year, you'll hear the greeting, Merry Christmas. But this is what Christmas has become for many of us in the 21st century. I would like to suggest to you this morning that you allow Christmas to become something else for you by thinking of Christmas in this way. Christmas is God speaking miraculously. And of course the question is, especially, I would argue, this time of year, are you listening? Learn to listen. This is what the scriptures teach us. Again, God has just broken 400 years of silence, 500 years of no recorded miracles. So more than giving and receiving of gifts, Christmas should be the season of listening to what God is saying. Because that's what you find in the opening chapters of Luke's gospel. Now I know this idea is completely foreign to us, but that's only because we have been taught, and I include myself in this, since I was a child and since we were all children, that Christmas is to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ through what? The giving and receiving of gifts. Christmas has become so materialistic, and here's the proof of it. In a global pandemic, with an economy in a depression, Americans spent over $11 billion during the shopping spree of Thanksgiving and Black Friday. Folks, this represents an increase of over 30% from last year. Even with COVID-19 occupancy restrictions placed on businesses, brick and mortar sales were up over 4%. I mean, you're not allowed in the stores for the most part. Very, you know, it's, it's, it's like 25%, isn't that what it is, is the, the, the occupancy limit? And the sales still went up 4%. And if, don't worry, if you're afraid to go to a store, you can just shop on your phone. Black Friday was the biggest day for, ever for mobile sales. That's just under $3 million came in from people shopping on their smartphones. And it's predicted that Americans will spend over $143 billion this Christmas season. And again, we're in the midst of an economic depression and a global pandemic, and you're not really allowed to go to the stores. It's very, very limited, and we are still spending. Well, why? Because that's what we've been raised to do. This is what the season is about, right? When God speaks, there are two responses from his people. Belief or unbelief. Now, either you believe what God is saying, right, and you change your life, or you don't believe what God is saying, and you go on living the same life. Luke presents us with these two responses to God in the Christmas narrative. And we'll look at them next week. But I'll close with this story. During my senior year in high school, I played football. I ended up becoming second team all Geauga County in northeastern Ohio. Now this was really quite an accomplishment when I think about it because in my previous years of high school athletics where I was in three years in Texas in a big school, 5A school, you could only do one or two athletics. I was good enough to do two athletics. I played basketball and baseball and started and was a good athlete and, and had some success. 
but I did not play football. You just couldn't do three sports. You got too far behind. So we moved up to Chardon, Ohio, Northeast Ohio, my senior year. I was able to do three sports. Now, how I was able to be good enough in football to become, I mean, really my first year football since eighth grade, second team all county. And folks, I don't want to slam football in Washington State, but football was born in Ohio. It is far better high school football. It is very, very athletic competitive, okay? I've had other coaches tell me that as well from here, by the way. That being said, why was I able to have so much success? Well, the best way to answer this question was provided by my father. Uh, he was at a store, I think it was a hardware store in Chardon, Ohio, one Saturday, and he uh, ran into the head football coach. He had not met him before, and they started talking. And they talked for a while, and eventually the conversation turned to talk about me. And the coach just said, I was a very good athlete. Here's the key, I was a coachable kid. So the coachable kid, who had not played football for years, who started the fall practice as a second team outside linebacker, but within a week was a starting outside linebacker all season on defense. And during the season, I eventually also played some running back. I ran the ball, caught passes. I even returned kickoffs. But why? I was teachable. I was coachable. Let me use another word for coachable. I was obedient. I did what I was told. I had a singular focus to do the will of the coaches. And they saw that. I earned their trust, and guess what? They gave me more responsibility. Now, the same thing can be said of Jesus. No one listened better to our Heavenly Father than he did. And what was the secret? I want to close with this quote, again from Henry Nouwen. Everything we know about Jesus indicates that he was concerned with only one thing, to do the will of his Father. Nothing in the Gospels is as impressive as Jesus' single-minded obedience to his Father. From his first recorded words in the temple, which were what? Do you not know that I must be busy with my Father's affairs? That's Luke 2, 49. And to his last words on the cross, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Jesus' only concern was to do the will of his Father. Is it any wonder then why God spoke to him so much? He was all ear because he was singularly focused on doing one thing and one thing only, the will of the Father. So this Christmas season, I want you to practice listening to God. Because what is Christmas? Christmas is God speaking miraculously. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for opening all of our eyes, mine the most, it would seem, in showing us that you're no longer silent, that you're no longer have ceased doing miracles, that you are speaking, you are doing miracles, and you are drawing us to yourself.
Lord, make us all ear. Make us a people that listen to you and change our hearts that it may be said with all integrity of heart that we desire to do one thing and one thing only, to do your will. Speak to us. Teach us your ways and how to recognize your voice and your spirit's leading in our lives. And all God's people said, amen.